Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning, how are you? It's good to see you. Let's go. Matthew chapter 6 is where we find ourselves this morning as we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. As always, if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to use one of the Bibles in the rack in front of you. If you don't own the Bible, you can keep that Bible as our gift to you. We want you to take that and have it and read it. If you're not used to looking up Scriptures in the Bible, you're not familiar with where the book of Matthew is, you can find the page numbers there on the screen. Two different copies of the same version of the Bible that you'll find there. That's why we have two different page numbers. As you're finding that, let me mention a couple things. Uh, We are going to take a a little one-week break from the Sermon on the Mount next week, and being the first weekend of the month, we're going to look at, I think it's good for us to every now and again teach on and recalibrate and remember what we are doing when we receive the Lord's Supper together as a church. And we do that on the first Sunday generally as a a body. And so next Sunday we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 11 and the Lord's teaching through the Apostle Paul on communion and what we are doing when we do that together. Then we're going to pick back up in the Sermon on the Mount the next two weeks. However, um, February 14th and 21st, the middle two weeks of February... I, along with Robert Ward, will be gone. We're going to be in India, and we will be ministering to, you remember Logan Copley, a member of our church, young man, went to be an interim pastor at a church in India with a a ministry and pastor that we're connected with there. Uh, Robert and I have been invited to go do a Bible conference for this church and another church that, that this missionary pastor planted, and so we will be gone the middle two weeks of February, but Will Hawk will be preaching just kind of continue on, continuing on in Matthew chapter 7. Really looking forward to that trip to India. It's going to be a long flight. And then we're taking a domestic Indian flight within India on an airline called Spice Jet, which is, <laughs> which is going to be awesome. <laughs> so uh, do pray for that trip, that the Lord would encourage the trip, uh, encourage the church there. We're going to be doing a, a conference on the doctrine of Scripture and uh, the role that it should play in the life of a Christian uh, and, and a church. This morning, we're going to turn our attention to Matthew chapter 6, and at the end of this message, on the end of chapter 6, we're going to see two members of Crosspoint be baptized, and we're going to celebrate the gospel through water bapti- baptism, which is always a, a beautiful picture of the gospel. One of the reasons that I, several months ago, thought would be good for us to work through this Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the most famous passages and famous sections of Scripture, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and all of the Bible, is because, along with several other things, this text that we're going to look at today, which I think is one of the most important and applicable passages in the whole Bible to where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life. Now, I think it's good to credit... Uh, people that have influenced you, and often I'll mention quotes. We may read a couple today. I'll attribute some thoughts that I have to an author that's been influential to me on a particular sermon. Um, Today, I want you to know that a book that has been incredibly helpful to me in the past few years and in the preparation of this sermon is a book by John Piper called Battling Unbelief, Defeating Sin with Superior Pleasure. Uh, much of my thought that I'm going to, much of my line of thinking in this text comes from Piper's line of thinking on this text in this book. So I'm not going to hinder myself or you by saying, and Piper said, just know that, uh, yeah, this book was really influential. Um, and I think you'd do well to pick that book up. I don't think we sell it in the Resource Center, but you can find that on uh, Amazon or, or other bookstore sites. Well, let me read Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. This is one of the most beautiful, one of the most encouraging, one of the most important passages in the whole Bible about the Christian life. And listen to these words. Just reading them, in these words in themselves are a tremendous encouragement to our soul. Let's read what Jesus says in Matthew 
6, 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Well, before we pray and ask the Lord to help us, I just want to give you the outline up front. I think there's three things that we see in this text, and then we're going to do some, spend some time on application. We're not up on the screen yet. We're just going to work through these things, as, and we'll have it up on the screen. But I think we see the problem. I think we see the argument that Jesus makes. And then I think we see the command that Jesus issues to us. So a problem, an argument, and a command. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we come to this text, we need your help. We are anxious people. We're anxious about the future. We're anxious about what people think of us. We're anxious about our country. We're anxious about our children. We're anxious about our own battle with sin. We are anxious people. We need these words. We need them to do more than skip off the surface of our heart like a smooth stone across a a pond. We need these words to sink deep into our lives. We need to be humbled by them. We need to be encouraged by them. We need to be transformed by them. There are people in this room that need to be saved today by your truth. Lord, would you do your work for the glory of your name and for the joy of your people. And in spite of my my feebleness, would you speak? And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing I think we see in this text, or that we should see, is the problem. Now on the surface, we may think that the problem is actually anxiety. We should worry less. Jesus is saying, don't be anxious. And, and certainly that is a problem. And it's a problem in, I think, just about all of our lives. Anxiety is a problem. And Anxiety, if we think about it, is the root of much bad fruit in our lives. So if we're anxious about uh, maybe the way others think of us, it will cause us to act in a way or to handle ourselves in a, in a way that can maybe make us actually miserable to be around. We're just wanting people to like us so much that we're, that we're just hard to be around. So actually the bad fruit of an anxiety over other people's opinion of you can actually work against you. An anxiety about maybe physical protection can inhibit you and 
cause you to be frozen with fear and stifle any ability for you to risk something great for God. And an anxiety over finances and future can cause you to, to white knuckle your finances and not be generous and, and actually lock you down and cut off your ability to be used by God for some purpose, maybe with the gifts that God has given you. Anxiety bears much bad fruit. But what Jesus is saying here is that actually anxiety and worry is not the true problem. Look at verse 30 again. After telling us three times already in the text, don't be anxious, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. In verse 30 he says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? And then he tells us what the real problem is. Oh, you of little faith. So actually, our anxiety is a bad fruit of a deeper root, which is unbelief or distrust in God's fatherly disposition towards us. Now, uh, that may be kind of like bad. And you're like, Brad, I thought we were just going to work on how to handle anxiety, but you're telling me the problem is worse. Thanks. That was helpful. Well, yes, and let me give you this analogy. This is an instance where we actually kind of want the worst news because then we can work on it. I mean, just imagine if, you know, you got this, you know, chest pain and you went into your doctor and uh, he said, oh, you you got some pain? Well, you know, we've got pain medication. Uh, Why don't you take Motrin? And if Motrin doesn't work, why don't you try Aleve, some, some sort of anti-inflammatory. That should help the symptom of pain, right? And then you go on your merry way. But what if there was a much deeper problem than just pain in your chest? What if you had a tumor growing in your chest? Wouldn't you want your doctor to just not give you some Motrin or some Aleve or to pat you on the back and say, get a good night's rest? And, you know, eat honey or whatever the latest magic cure is? No, you'd want him to take an MRI of your soul so that he could actually take, tell you the worst news. But if that worst news is treatable, it's actually good news to know the worst news so that you can actually handle it, right? Right. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that, The problem is not anxiety. That's just how it kind of bubbles up in the surface. But the true problem is unbelief. It's this disposition that we are all plagued with to some degree that even if we have trusted in Christ, even if we believe in God and what He has done in His Son Jesus to make us right with Him through the work of His Son, and even though we believe that He has filled us with His Spirit and guaranteed our future inheritance. Even if we believe all those things, as we walk through this life, sometimes our vision gets cloudy and we can begin to waver. Even the strongest among us can waver and doubt and be anxious. And in that moment, what is going on that is much deeper is a lack of trust in God's fatherly care. That's the problem. Now, what does Jesus say? What does he say to that? And I want you to see then the argument. How does he combat that? What does he say? He uses an argument which was common in Jewish thought. In fact, it's, 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 it's just a common way of arguing. Even in a court of law in the United States, it's a specific argument called I'm going to throw a little Latin on you here. I had to look this up. Don't think that I'm smart. I actually read this just this last week. A fortiori, which means from lesser to stronger, or an argument from strength. In other words, Jesus, in this, is using an age-old way of logic, of arguing a point, saying, if this, then certainly that, right? So here's kind of an analogy. If that person is dead, they are certainly not breathing, right? 
The, the thing that comes after the first part of the argument is, of course, it's an obvious consequence as a result of the first part of the argument. Do you understand that? We do that, right? Right? So if, you know, you are from El Centro, you love Mexican food, right? You, you don't even have to, if, of course, it's a natural consequence. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look at the birds of the air. How they, verse 26, neither reap nor sow nor gather into your barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? So if God cares for birds, how much more will he care for his people who bear his image? Do you see the argument? He, he does it again in verse 30. We just read it. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, this thing that has the lifespan of a day, right? If God so clothes the lilies of the field, the grass of the field, how much more will he clothe you? Do you see the argument, the logic that Jesus is making? If this, then how much more that? And that's exactly Paul's argument in Romans chapter 8. And now, go to Romans chapter 8. I want you to see this. I know that 75% of every sermon preached by me at Crosspoint has some reference to Romans 8. I realize that. I realize every time I say Romans 8, you guys snicker and say, there he goes again. Well, maybe it's because Romans 8 is awesome. (laughs) Romans 8. Listen to the logic of Paul, verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? There's there's that same line of logic, right? If if God's for you, nobody can stand against you, right? Then verse 32. He, friends, there is so much bound up in verse 32. This would be a good yellow sticky note on the bathroom mirror, dash to the cardboard, um, dash to the car, 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 Cardboard, car. Put, yeah, write it on cardboard and put it on the dash of your car. <laughs> this would be, there is so much bound up in verse 32. It is so full of truth. Listen to verse 32. Listen to the logic of verse 32. He, meaning God, the Father, who did not spare his own son, meaning Jesus, but gave him up for us all, If this, then the next part, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Okay, now we're going to come back to that verse here in just a second. But lest any of you think, oh, Brad is slipping into prosperity gospel stuff here. What he's saying is that if God's given us Jesus, then he's going to give us all the stuff that we need, like clothes and food and stuff. No, 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 no. When he says all things, he doesn't necessarily just mean temporary goods in these 80 years. Because as he goes on, he talks about how sometimes we get killed. So verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? That's a rhetorical question saying nothing, but it's also giving us a clue that sometimes we have to face those things. So Jesus, God giving us all things because he's given us Jesus doesn't necessarily mean comfort in this life because he doesn't rule out the possibility that we'll have to face these things. Do you see that? He's just saying they won't separate us from him. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, right? I mean, just 
I mean, we could spend all day. We could spend months. In fact, we did a couple, a couple years ago just going through Romans chapter 8. We could, on the logic bound up in that verse. Let's go back to verse 32, though. He says that he who did not spare his own son, but get, what is God not sparing his son from? Think about that for a second. He didn't spare his own son. What, in this, listen carefully, because bound up in this is the very heart of the gospel. God is not giving Jesus, in other words, not sparing him to, like, intercept us from having a bad life or to, you know, kind of procure earthly blessings. God is not sparing Jesus the Son from his own wrath that is being poured out on a rebellious creation. (laughs) And so God is saying that I am sending the Son to bear the wrath that should have been yours. That's your greatest problem. That's the thing you should truly be anxious about. I'm sending Jesus. I'm not sparing him. He is absorbing my wrath. He's satisfying as he's extinguishing it because he is the infinitely holy, perfect son of God, the completely righteous man, the eternal righteous son, and he is the one who has enough to extinguish and satisfy the justice and righteousness of God. He's the only one that can do that, and I'm sending him and I'm not sparing him so that he can do that work for you. And then he rises again in victory over it, and now he fills you with his spirit, and he intercedes for you, promising that nothing, 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 not even death, will separate you from my love. Now, when you see that, you you see the heart of the gospel, friends, right? So if you're not a believer in here this morning, Don't think that this message is ultimately about how to have a better Tuesday or how to fight anxiety. No, you have a much deeper tumor growing in your spiritual chest. And that is the dreadful and righteous and deserved judgment of God whom you have no case against. You can't stand against it. And your only hope, friends, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is the gospel. Your only hope is to trust not in yourselves or your own ability to try harder, but to trust in the Son of God who God the Father did not spare to bear your punishment if you will trust in him. That's what you need to do right now. Okay, that's the gospel. But it also applies to the Christian life. If God did this, how much more will he not also do this? That's Jesus' argument. Do you see that? And that's how he combats our anxiety. And then, finally, he issues a command. And we're going to spend the rest of the message talking about how we live out this command. So he issues this command. And what does he say? Back to Matthew chapter 6, several times he says, don't be anxious. Verse 25, verse 26, why are you anxious? Verse 28, why are you anxious? Verse 31, don't be anxious. Essentially twice, indirectly, and twice directly, he's telling us, don't be anxious. And then verse 33, the command, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, a little bit about this command, don't be anxious, but seek first the God. Have you, I love this because I feel like this so often when I'm just meeting with my own soul and with people. Have you ever seen that Bob Newhart skit on YouTube? Now, for you young bucks under the age of 40, you don't know who Bob Newhart is, and that is much to your detriment. <laughs> Bob Newhart, uh, still alive, I think he's probably in his mid to late 80s, was a comedian Back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, had a show called the Newhart, Bob Newhart Show, I guess, a creative title. And he used to be on Johnny Carson all the time, and he's one of my favorite all-time comedians. And uh, there's this YouTube, I don't know if it was on Saturday Night Live or some comedy show, but he was like a psychiatrist. And this lady comes to him, and she has this fear of being buried alive in a box. And Bob Newhart tells her, he says, he listens to her, and he says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some very clear instruction. It's just two words, right? It's just two words, and you need to 
And so she says, should I write it down? Well, if you want to, but, you know, write it down, two words. Are you ready? Yeah. She leans forward. He tells her, stop it. <laughs> and then he goes on for the next couple minutes just telling her, she brings up other stuff, stop it, stop it, stop it. Now, we may be tempted to say, okay, well, Jesus is just telling me here, don't be anxious, right? Well, thanks, Jesus. I I knew that. But that's not all that Jesus is saying. This is where we need to read the Bible and we need to stare at it. And we need to look at it. We need to ask God to help us work it into the fabric of our lives. What does it mean to seek First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So here's the question. We're going to spend the balance of our time on this. How can we battle the unbelief of anxiety? Or what does it mean to seek the kingdom of God first? How can we battle this unbelief of anxiety? The first thing that I think we need to do as we look at the whole counsel of God's word is we need to, we need to repent of unbelief, right? We need to admit it. We need to admit that we are anxious people. What does the word repent mean? It means to confess our need. It means to turn from trusting in ourselves, to turn from the thing that we're anxious about, and to look afresh to God and put our hope in Him. Now, some of us maybe grew up in context where we think of this word repent as a kind of, kind of religious, fear-mongering word, but it is a gracious word. Word. When you hear the word repentance, don't think of it in some sort of fundamentalist, scolding sort of way, as if God is up there with his arms folded, scolding you when you come repentant to him. Think of it as grace, a time of refreshing. In fact, when the apostles were preaching in Acts chapter 3, they said, repent of your sins that they may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing might come. Repentance is refreshing. I want you to look at this story with me in Matthew chapter 9. I think one of my favorite stories in the Bible. The only verse that I put up on the screen was Matthew chapter, chapter 9 verse 24. But I'm going to read a little bit more than that um, in front of it. So there's this situation where this man brings his son who was you know, being plagued by uh, some demons to Jesus. And he says, when they brought the boy to him in verse 20, the spirit saw, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Verse 21 of chapter 9 of Mark 9. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. And listen to what the father says here. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And verse 24, listen to this. This is another sticky note verse. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So this man confesses, look, there's part of me that believes But yet there's another part of me that's just bound up with anxiety and worry, thinking that you just, you you know, it's just not going to happen for me. And then notice what, how Jesus reacts in verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Notice what Jesus does not do when this man repents of this part of his heart that still has trouble trusting Jesus. He doesn't say to him, well, come back next week when you have enough faith. He doesn't scold him and say, well, try harder next time. He's not Richard Pryor on the family feud. There's not a big red X that comes up and says, not Richard Pryor. Who was the guy? (laughs) Steve Harvey, but that's the new guy. There was an older guy back when TV was good. Anyway, (laughs) Richard, Richard Dawson. That's right. Richard Pryor. (laughs) 
He doesn't give us a red X of disapproval. You see that? We sing this song, Come ye sinners, weak and wounded. Right? And then that, we are weak and wounded, right? Come on. We all limp to Jesus. Luther puts it this way. In the 95 Thesis that he, Martin Luther, back in the 1500s, he kicked off this little crazy thing we like to call the Protestant Reformation. And he wrote 95 points of dispute against the church and the poor theology that was in the church at that time. And I think it was number three of his, of his statements there. He said that repentance isn't just the beginning of the Christian life. It is the whole of the Christian life. We, we need to repent continually of our unbelief as we drive through the muddy field of this life we will get mud on our windshields. That is part of life. And we need to continually repent of it. And when we do, God is gracious. He comes to us and he hears us and he doesn't give us the red X. And then secondly, how we battle unbelief. Now, in fact, before I move on, right now, let's not move. Let's not move like right now. There's somebody that is anxious. There's somebody that is scared. There's somebody that's racked with just fear. Like right now, do not let this moment go by. Right now, write it down on your seat and say, God, I need to repent of that. And in just a moment, when we wrap this thing up and we sing, instead of sitting in your seat with your hands folded, do something radical to go after God. Maybe come up here and pray or, or get in your chair and turn around and pray. Don't let the moment Come on, right now, resolve to say, God, I'm going to come to you. I believe, but help my unbelief. Do it right now. Like, write it down. And you may be saying, shut up, Brad, so I can do it. Okay, in just a second, give me a second. But resolve, like resolve to, to come to God weak and wounded, full of anxiety and worry, and he will not cast you away. That's number one. Number two here is strive to trust God more. No, I, I, ooh, this, I wrestled. I, this was good. This was good for my soul this week as I wrestled with this point. Strive to trust God more. Now, you may not know this about me. Um, if you're newer, if you've been around for a while, unless you've had your head in the dirt, um, you know that I believe and I think this is biblical, I believe, in fact, I'm staking my life on the utter and exhaustive sovereignty of God in all things. Now, if you're looking to put me in a theological camp, some of you are like, ah, ah, ah. all right, you know that I would adhere to a particular theological perspective that sometimes is called reformed theology. What does that mean? It means that it comes from this word, meaning the Protestant Reformation, meaning that the church was reformed by the word of God. And the truths that were reformed or recaptured in this Protestant Reformation had much to do with the sovereignty of God in salvation and his initiation in grace, but also his sovereign power and providential control over all of redemptive history and human existence, right? So I believe that. I utterly believe that. And I think it is right to emphasize that because I think when we see that, it fuels our life and confidence in God. But here is a common weakness for Christians that believe theologically like I do, and I think that might be a good many of you. Right? A common weakness is that we rightly understand the sovereignty of God in all things and in salvation, but we leave it there. We leave it 30,000 feet in the air as a doctrinal idea, and we don't reach down, grab it, and apply it to every area of our life. We rightly believe and emphasize God's utter sovereignty over all things, but we allow it to not make us fueled with confidence and obedience, but lazy, right? 
let's just say amen to that, right? I believe in the utter sovereignty of God. Now, you Presbyterians are about to get excited, and I know it is completely against your nature to clap, but you might just after I read this. Listen to the Westminster Confession of Faith, which, by the way, is the same thing as the London Baptist Confession of Faith in 1689. It says this in chapter 3, paragraph 1 of God's eternal decree, and I believe wholeheartedly that this is true. It says, and this is a bunch of English Puritans in the 1600s that came up with this Confession of Faith, and it is legit. (laughs) God, from all eternity, did... By the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither God is the author of sin. So what they're saying there is that, yeah, horrible stuff happens. But in some providential, mysterious way, although God is over all things and ordains all things, he's not culpable for the evil that happens. Somehow or another, it is part of his providential plan to work redemption. Nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. In other words, in some mysterious way, while still being utterly sovereign, he does not violate the, the real decisions of real people. It doesn't mean that God is on the same level with our will. He's over and above it. It doesn't mean that we are completely free, but we are as free as anything that has ever been free, but we are only free to do what God is over and in control of. Nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. In other words, he's saying that everything that falls out is part of God's eternal plan. Now, that's one of the greatest mysteries of the universe. We could take months to just scratch the surface on that, but I believe that. And I don't believe it because a bunch of Englishmen in the 1600s said it. I believe it because the Holy Spirit said it through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1.11, where it says, listen to this, this is another sticky note verse, that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Okay, so have I established that for you, that I believe in the utter sovereignty of God, right? Okay, you're saying, okay, Brad, get off. That horse is dead. Send it to the glue factory and move on, right? Okay, I'm sorry. I offended you if you were, I grew up with horses. Stop it. I grew up with horses. Stop it. Don't get mad at me. I'm just saying, somebody enjoyed that. I'm just saying that that horse is dead. It's a euphemistic expression. You get it. But here's the problem, is we let this beautiful truth stop us from striving. When the Bible is full of truths and verses, not just about the providence of God, but of the responsibility of his people to strive. So listen to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. It says this, it says, therefore, My beloved, as you have also obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. No, no, no. Unless the Holy Spirit wrote that, that's a contradiction. God is working and willing to bring about his good pleasure So when wrongly understood, when we think of God's sovereignty, we would say, oh, well, that means I'm just going to say la vie, and I'm just going to eat Cheetos and wait for Jesus to come back. But it says, no, in light of that, work, strive, do something, right? Now, just some verses that just mention striving, Philippians 1, verse 27, Paul says this, only let your manner of life, just one chapter earlier from where we read, only let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We should strive. Jesus says in Luke 13 verse 24 to strive to enter through the narrow door. And then in Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews says this, and it just seems like, God, how can, this seems like it's contradicting, were it not written by the Holy Spirit and full of gospel truth. Hebrews 4 verse 11, the writer says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. That rest is talking about the Sabbath rest, this rest that God has for his people forever and ever and ever. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest or heaven so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. 
So in light of the fact that God has promised to clothe us, to be good to us, and again, that doesn't necessarily mean temporal blessing, but in light of the fact that God for his people has guaranteed as Romans 8 says, that nothing shall separate them from his love. In light of that, get busy letting go of the things that you're anxious about and grabbing hold of God and not letting go. That's what it means to strive. And I think I could do better at that. And I think you can do better at that too. And then I end with this. So what is it? This may just be kind of an offshoot of what it means to strive. And in light of this striving, let's put some tread on this tire now. I think it means acting on the promise of God's future grace. So what do I mean by future grace? Again, this is a theme that Piper spells out in his book. In fact, he wrote a, a book on this whole thing called Future Grace, which I highly commend. What is future grace? Well, Piper makes this point that much of Christian culture in the world, and certainly in America, uses as its fuel or motivation for obedience to God a very wrong mindset that he calls, that other people have called, a debtor's ethic. Debtor, like debt, D-E-B-T, debtor, a debtor's ethic. And it goes like this. It goes, since God has done so much for you, how can you not help but repay him with your life? He who did not spare his own son, you should really serve him because God gave you the most supreme treasure in the universe. So in light of that, you should serve God, right? Now, that sort of makes sense to us, right? Instinctively, we think, okay, well, I've I've kind of heard that. I've sort of grown up on that. But when we think about it, how can we ever repay God? Like that will, God does not desire for us to continually be in a kind of debt to him. Because later on in Romans 11, it says, who has given God a gift that he should be repaid? He can't be repaid. Do you see that? And that's not the line of thinking that Paul uses in Romans 8.32. He says, he who did not spare his own son, past grace, yes, you were in his debt, and he made it up, How will he not now? Future. He's going to not just, you don't have to repay the debt in the past. That's debtor's ethic. But now you can rely on the grace that will continue to come. He who did not spare his own son, past grace, how will he not richly give you all things? Future grace, right? So salvation, the gospel, the good news is not just this one-time deposit of interaction with God and you need to put your tail between your legs and spend the rest of your life tucking in your shirt, not going to rated R movies, not drinking, not smoking, not chewing, not going out with people that do and be a good little boy, Johnny and Susie. And if you keep being a good little boy, then God will kind of be happy with you and he'll sort of let you in the side door. That's not the gospel, right? It's not the gospel. It is God did this for you. And in light of that, remember Jesus' argument. In light of that, he's going to keep being good to you. He promises to never leave you. He's going to do it for you. So in light of that daily grace that's going to come to you, future grace, give your life away and act on it. That's the promise of future grace. We see this pattern in the Old Testament when Israel's wandering through the desert. God doesn't back up the truck, download a bunch of bread and quail from heaven. He drops enough for them for the day, right? Robert read it this morning and we all amend it because we knew it was instinctively true. Lamentations chapter three, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. His mercies are new every Five years. No, no, that wasn't it. His mercies are new every month. No, no, his mercies are new every morning. Right? So then what does that mean? It means that in light of what God has done for me in his son, 
And what he, in light of that, remember Jesus' argument, of this, then certainly that, in light of that, now I am free to let go of my worry and to act radically and display the surpassing grace of God in my life right now and for the future. Listen to what Piper says. One quote from Johnny Pipes. So good. Listen to this. Listen to the logic here. Trusting in future grace is the enabling strength of our obedience. In other words, this, this sort of debtor's ethic will always have you kind of guilt-ridden. God did this for you, so you should do this for Him, as if we can ever match that. No, no. He says that trusting in future grace is the enabling strength of our obedience. The more we trust in future grace, that God will be good to us and actually fulfill that promise we read in Romans 8, the more we trust in future grace, the more we give God, listen to this, the opportunity in our lives to show the glory of His inexhaustible grace. So, here's the challenge. Take a promise of future grace. In other words, that God, you're for me, not against me. You promise to live. Take a promise of future grace and do some radical act of obedience on it. God will be mightily honored. Right? Now, I know all you Reformed Christians like me are like, oh, Brad's taking some verses out of context. What if you think of something stupid and it fails? Friends, we are so scared of being out of context that sometimes we're not even in context. Right? Let's, let's do something for God. Let's let go of anxiety and worry. And let's believe what the Bible says in Philippians 1.6, that God started a good work in you and he will finish it. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12 where the apostle Paul says, nevertheless, I am persuaded, I am convinced that, that he, that, that, that what I have given to him, he will guard until that day. Let's look at Romans 8 that we read and let's believe and stand and say, God, I may get some things wrong. I may have some wrong ideas about what the future holds, but it's better than being locked down in fear. I'm going to be corrected in the future, no doubt, but God, I am going to do some radical act of obedience. Let's, let's read Psalm 46 that Reuben read for us at the beginning of the service, and let's stand on that truth, and, and let's lock onto it and believe it and jump off from it where it says that God is our refuge, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Not just because he's done something for us in the past, as glorious as it is, but because in light of what he's done for us in the past, how will he not also graciously with Jesus give us all things? So before we wrap it up and see some people be baptized and shout hallelujah to God, maybe we're fearful that at the end of our life we won't have enough money. So right now, resolve. Resolve. To be generous with your money. And I'm not talking about, this is not some give to, don't give to cross point. Come on. We got enough. We got bricks going up on the outside. We got new bathrooms. Did you see the new bathrooms? Little toilets and brass handles and all that silly, stupid stuff that we just think is so important. Don't give to us. Ask Springer about a missionary in this church that may need something and give it to him. Highland Community Church off of 2nd Avenue in Bibb City is doing a wonderful work of God. Some of you need to let go of your financial uncertainty and give generously to that work of God there. Do it as some act of obedience and see what God might do. Some of us are so scared about our reputation at work that it locks us down and we never mention our faith in Jesus. We need to step out on some radical act of obedience and share our faith with somebody and see how God might be mightily honored. Somebody in this room is scared of safety or scared of their child's safety and you need to let that child go or maybe you need to let yourself go and you need to sign up to go on a mission trip with this church across the world, get on a plane, go to some foreign culture which might scare the wit out of you but when you put yourself in that situation, who knows what God may do? He may call you to spend the rest of your life giving your life away for something far greater than 40 years of security. 
Let's stake our lives on Jesus' argument. If he clothes the birds of the air and the grass of the field, that's not a promise of safety for the next 80 years. It is a promise that if he did that, how much more will he not love you, his children, and use your life for his glory, whatever that may mean. Let's do that. Let's do that. Let's do that. Do not fear. Do not fear. But seek first the kingdom of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we now see the gospel celebrated, as we repent of our small anxieties, as we see afresh the promise of the gospel, Lord, put steel in our spine and fuel in our guts and let us stand on the sure and certain promise that if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, how will he graciously with him not give us all things? That Jesus, the one who filled us with your spirit, the one who right now is indeed interceding for us, has promised us that he will never leave us or forsake us. So God, would we forsake anxiety and forsake our little trinkets and idols and would we do something radical for you whatever that looks like and that may just mean witnessing to somebody or giving something away lord may we do it may we do it for the glory of your name and lord as we see the gospel proclaimed in these testimonies and baptisms may it fuel our soul with confidence, not just in your past grace, but in your present and future promise that you will be with us. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.